Hello everybody and welcome back to Ear Read This. I'm Ash, your host, and following on from yesterday's episode on Geoffrey of Monmouth's Life of Merlin, today I am once again joined by my guest Mark Walker to talk a little bit more about translation, eccentricity, and the Latin Hobbit. Mark has written the only English verse translation of The Life of Merlin, which I highly recommend to anyone interested in Arthurian literature or medieval poetry, but also to anyone who's enjoyed what they've heard on these podcasts. You don't need to be an expert on the 12th century to just dive in. Mark's translation is a wonderful read, that rolling, incantatory verse we described on the last episode, carrying you along on this odd and surprisingly heartfelt story of a man driven mad by war. Mark's version also has really useful introductions to each chapter of the poem, where you can read more about some of the sources and contemporary references we've been discussing. So if you want to get yourself a copy, there's a link in the episode description box below. I began the second part of our conversation by asking Mark what first drew him to making a translation of Geoffrey's poem. It's a subject, I mean, I guess I come come at it from two different completely different ways one is that i'm very interested in you know neo-latin literature and and writings of uh, latinists you know in post post-roman writings if you like you know up right up to the modern age and and even there are believe it or not people these days who write latin poetry and things just for fun but you know there's a whole tradition of neo-latin literature that's largely um ignored and um and i um so one thing is that's as a as a student of latin that's always been an area that i found very fascinating and reading reading neo-latin anyway so and you know having come across jeffrey through looking at bits of the history in in latin and enjoying that and thinking oh yeah this is really readable and this is great and actually the latin is really kind of leaps off the page and is actually really great fun so i think that led me to being interested in the life of merlin um, there, there are. Having said, you know, what the, your kind words about my translation. There have been a couple of translations in the past, but they are they've been prose translations. And, and what, I, the, what I want to do was try and bring out, like I said earlier, the, the more poetical language that Jeffrey uses in that. So I, I deliberately set out to write um, a, a poetical, metrical uh, translation to make it. Because the poem is, as we said, the character is eccentric, the poem, the structure of the poem is, everything about the poem is eccentric. And, and I wanted to, to try and bring that out in a way that just a prose translation doesn't particularly. So there was there was that strand of it, but I think, you know, that doesn't necessarily answer the question, why Merlin? And I, and I guess coming back to, you know, mentioning things like seeing as a, as a you know, young teenager, seeing John Borman's Excalibur and, and, and just being a fan of, Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and 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 start you know Star Wars Star Wars is another Merlin you know Ben can Obi Wan Kenobi is another Merlin isn't he Luke Skywalker is King Arthur and and Obi Wan Kenobi is Merlin you know and so it, 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 you as soon as you as soon as you as soon as you discover the character of Merlin you suddenly realise that he's all of these people that he's he's Gandalf and he's Obi Wan Kenobi and he's Dumbledore and you know and and he's any number of other people as well. You know, like I said, he's he's also arguably somebody like Doctor Who, um, in in that respect of that what the kind of character is. You know, he's all of these kind of eccentric geniuses slash magicians slash wise mentors to the young hero. You know, and all of those kind of things. Although, of course, it's not in Jeffrey. He's not the wise mentor to the young hero because that comes later. 
and it, you don't see in Jeffrey's history, you don't see young Arthur being brought up by Merlin in, like you said, in T.H. White or, uh, or, or even in Mallory in, in the Mort Arthur. I think you do, if I remember it. It's a while since I've read it. Um, but, you know, you get those sequences where, where, of course, young Arthur pulls the sword from the stone and then Merlin sort of takes him under his wing. You don't get any of that in Geoffrey. That doesn't happen in Geoffrey. That's not, that's a later thing. It's funny, isn't it, that this is the, 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 the first major Merlin and yet that aspect isn't here at all. Yeah, which has become the modern, the modern trope, if you like, hasn't it? Which is the, that, the wise old mentor character who, who nurtures the young, the young hero and brings out his powers, you know, whether it's Dumbledore and Harry Potter or Gandalf and Frodo or, or um, you know, as I said, Obi-Wan and Luke and think, you know, all of those and loads and loads of others, you know, that's actually completely absent from from Jeffrey. So, so I guess I've come from it, you know, from just to finally answer your question is those two different strands being, being interested in neo-Latin literature and just being interested in, Things like originally, you know, historically as a, as a young lad reading Tolkien and then slightly later on discovering things like Mallory, reading Mallory and T.H. White and T.H. White when I was young. And, you know, all of that and, and all of that sort of mythology of of, of the, the Knights of the Round Table and, and Arthur and Merlin and stuff and, and just enjoying that and being a fan of that kind of stuff. And then when, when you finally do then get around to reading the life of Merlin, it does hit you between the eyes as to how completely different it is and how completely unlike, unlike any of that it is. And, 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 and in a way it makes it more fascinating because it's like, here's a Merlin, here's the, actually the original Merlin because Jeffrey is creating this character, albeit based on all of these Welsh legends. Mm. He's, he's synthesizing them and creating this character. And the character he creates is not like the character we imagine today not not like at all which in itself is fascinating he's more like the taunter of kings than the um mentor of them yes exactly absolutely yes yes it's that mischievous yes he, he's not he's not very helpful to to king ridderk and, and ganiate and all of those people not at all in the life mm-hmm. of merlin absolutely and and even in the the history that where he you know so he helps uther um but that's really the only thing he does that's particularly helpful and with Vortigern, really, he just gives Vortigern the bad news that his kingdom is doomed. Really, basically, yeah. that you know <laughs> that you're gonna, you're sorry, mate. You know, you're you're um, it's not it's not working, and you're actually gonna have to wait for your successor to come along and try and beat the Anglo-Saxons and things like that. So he comes up to the tower like a builder, just saying, "No, it's it's ruined." Yes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a story. There is a story in. A Vortigern episode in the history where it's remember Merlin is a young man at this point, a young boy even at this point, and he relates that his his mother, I think it's his mother, was an incubus, which in in Latin doesn't necessarily mean what we some you know you might think it means some female vampire or something, but um, it, it it's a sort of rather obscure word, but it might mean a witch or a or a some demonic character or something, and um, and hence you get the idea that that he, he was not born of a, a human mother and um, he's therefore this this supernatural character somehow. Um, you at least get the hint of that, which again is a hint that's then built on by subsequent writers who then take that and run with that idea of Merlin being a more supernatural character. But I think, you know, Jeffrey mentions it in passing, but doesn't 
build on it at all and doesn't doesn't dwell on it as anything no. specific at all. Do you think it's just down to that small circulation of this poem that we spoke about earlier that people like Mallory and other Arthurian writers to come just won't have come across this? I mean, I think definitely they wouldn't have come across it because I think the manuscript was so narrowly available to a very select group of people for a start. But I think even if they had come across it, I suspect they wouldn't have been interested in it. Because it doesn't it doesn't present the Merlin that they want to present. Mm. You know, because l- later on you want the, you know, Mallory is an intensely sort of romantic writer in that in that anachronistically modern sense of of, you know, he wants these tragic characters. And you know, and you've got you've got Lancelot and and, and Guinevere in, in Mallory, haven't you? And you've got and you know you've got Tristan and Isolde in, in Mallory and you've got and, and the character of Merlin has got to be a much more, if you like, romantic figure in, in Geoffrey. And by the by the time you finish Geoffrey's life of Merlin, Merlin is in no way a romantic character at all. He's no longer mad. He's completely sort of normal. And he, he's basically become a sort of slightly dusty academic professor, just sort of talking about natural philosophy with his with his friends and things, you know, and, and having little seminars. Uh, and you know he's not even doing any any prophesying or anything anymore he's not doing anything other than just sort of living the life of a rather sort of quiet academic which which you then which then brings me to my sort of final wild theory about all of this that i think in that respect my suspicion is at least that that merlin is jeffrey's alter ego is jeffrey jeffrey's idea you know he's he's he himself is effectively an academic although he's a man of the church and he does become a bishop his he, you know he's a man of learning you know a love of history and literature and all of this and and his ideal sort of character and ideal life is the one that he he leaves he leaves merlin in his lovely little sort of secluded palace in the forest chatting with taliesin and people and talking about natural philosophy and, and philosophy and things and and you get that's the point where i'm thinking i think this is jeffrey telling us about himself or you know this is jeffrey's ideal for what you know what he would like so so that 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 jeffrey's merlin then becomes his alter ego in that respect and that's that's not the romantic slightly tragic or mysterious figure of later myth it's it's a rather more mundane uh, character in, entirely yeah he's definitely depicting if you like he's he sort of ends up at the at the end with this little scene of a a nice idealized little academic community that they're all just sort of happily getting on with things not being bothered and just sort of um talking philosophy and having a nice time again it's just it's it's so radically different from the later merlin the later wet trajectory of merlin that you've got to think that those writers like mallory and and any and subsequently had definitely had either almost certainly had never seen or read this poem anyway but if they had you know i'd strongly suspect that they wouldn't have drawn much from it if even if they had you mentioned in your introduction the pleasure of this poem and is uh, a really pleasurable read it's funny weird mm. um surprising in all kinds of ways if you're familiar with the character of merlin as we've said why it seems strange to me that it hasn't been translated in verse before it was any particular reason has there just been a lack of interest or is it seen as scholarly yeah i I suspect it seems too scholarly you know as i said my my intention was to was to make it perhaps a little bit more accessible there have there have been a couple of translations but they they were i suppose slightly off-putting in that they were 
uh, scholarly translations in that you've got the Latin text, they're facing page parallel page mm. translations. You've got the Latin text on the left-hand page and the English, ver- uh, English li- the literal English translation on the right. And it's really the point of that is it's more of a study text, isn't it? With, with notes and some nice scholarly notes about textual sources and things like that. So it's not really, there wasn't really before I did it, a, a, a sort of pop, if you like a popular edition that you could just a paperback popular edition, you could just just browse through with, with not, not knowing or caring anything about Latin. Why that is though, I think it just comes back to this, this idea that the Merlin that is depicted by Geoffrey in this poem is so unlike what we're expecting and so unlike the Merlin that we're familiar with. We want to read a story about magic and a guy with a pointy hat and a, and a magic wand and, you know, running around with Excalibur and, and or whatever and, and encouraging other people to use Excalibur or whatever. And, you know, and that kind of we want to read that stuff. And, and this is not not what you find in the life of Merlin at all and nothing even remotely like it. So I suspect, yeah, um, why has it not been very popular? Yes, it just doesn't tell a story that that people are expecting and um so it hasn't really caught on I'd, and one suspects as i said you know given the, the 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 paucity of sources for the original poem anyway that even in jeffrey's day it, it never really took off because it was it certainly clearly wasn't copied and spread and disseminated mm. so you know it may have been there were a few copies made of it to, to circulate to his immediate literary circle but it never went beyond that Nobody said, wow, this is amazing. Let's make a few, let's copy this and let's get this and take it off and, and spread it around. Whereas his history, by contrast, was immediately like a effectively a bestseller in its day and has basically remained so ever since. Um, whereas the poem has, has remained sadly obscure. And I, I agree with you. I think it is a lot more fun and enjoyable than people think it is. And I think people get put off because what you know all the stuff we've been talking about where he's digressions on natural philosophy and running around as a madman in the woods and people oh that doesn't sound great but it is just it's it, it it's its own thing it's its own thing and it's a very unique creation and whether in the in the in the latin as i said as an as a work of neo latin literature i think it's it's just fabulous and unique completely unique because as i said any if you compare it with almost any other poem of that length in in neo-latin literature they they are effectively they're almost always about classical subjects they're about the trojan war or about the they're about the you know the the god the the olympic gods and the titans and you know the stories from greek mythology or something and they're 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 all of that or they're about some contemporary war they're about some epic subject of war using lots of strained analogies and metaphors with Greek mythology and with Roman poetry and stuff. This is a poem, this is an epic poem. It isn't about war. It isn't about great kingdoms and it isn't about heroes facing off against villains and insurmountable odds or gods or anything like that. It's just about this bloke running around being rather eccentric. And um, the subject, you know, the subject matter is completely unique. It, it's so unique. It's so, it's such a, it's, 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 it's such a one-off. It's such a one of its kind. And in a way, I think it's, funnily enough, although, as I said, it, it was, we, we, we know now that it draws on so many sources, it's actually, bizarrely, it's too original for its own good in that it's, it's too unique. It's too much of a one of a kind. 
because it, it doesn't connect with other narratives. It doesn't fall into a genre. It's like, what genre is this poem? It's an epic poem in, in originally in Latin hexameter. Well, therefore, it's got to be like the Aeneid, or it's got to be like, it's got to be about wars and battles and great heroes and gods and, and mythology. And it isn't about any of that stuff at all. It must have been so exciting to translate without with that complete lack of lack of precedence. Well, I think that I, I mean I rather I mean again this is you know we keep I keep saying about how and and you've rightly said about how sort of eccentric it is and I, and I I made a very eccentric choice to to translate it as a not only in verse but I I said to myself I'm going to give myself a ridiculously stupid task now I'm going to translate it in English hexameter which is almost an unheard of meter in English and I don't want to bore your listeners or you with with too much talk about oh I know I love this stuff and prosody but you know I mean English I mean just a very quick very quick thing about this you know English naturally falls into iambic meter okay which is why why Shakespeare just happily writes all of his plays basically iambic and you get you know because English will go um a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, de dum, de dum, de dum, de dum, like that, nicely. English does that very nicely. And that works really well for English. So naturally, if you're going to write a long form work of uh, poetry, which is why Shakespeare does this for his plays, you, you're going to use iambic, an iambic line. And if you're Shakespeare, you're going to use an iambic pentameter, which is what, what that is, you know, you know, um, and you know, go and you go. If music be the food of love, play on. You know that's you know a nice five five foot iambic pentameter and all of that kind of stuff. Um, the hexameter, by contrast, works nicely for Latin. It's actually a Greek form because all of these forms are originally Greek because the Greeks invented all of this stuff, but the Romans copied them. Um, and the hexameter line works quite nicely for Latin because Latin, unlike English lacks all of these little particle words so like ah and the and all of those little words that we have in english so like that you know a horse a horse in latin you wouldn't there's no ah horse you just if we were to use that word you'd have to use the word equus okay and if you were to use the word equus the stress so a horse the stress goes didum a horse the stress falls on the word horse in the latin word equus the, the stress falls on the first syllable so it is equus so that it's it's dumdy. So that's a trochee. It's a trochee, not an I am, you know. But the point being that a hexameter line consists of different metrical feet, but the rhythm is more it isn't a, exactly a trochaic rhythm, but it's more trochaic. In other words, the stress, certainly the stress at the beginning of the line always falls on the first syllable. And in English to do that, it's difficult to do that in English because English doesn't like to do that. You know, in English, we tend to, as I said, we tend to naturally go de dum de dum de dum not dum de dum de because that sounds rather ponderous. And in, in Latin, you get different, in the hexameter, you get different feet and you get the dum diddy little foot. So you get this two, you get, get a stress on the first beat and then two, two so it effectively goes... Dum diddy, and the, the, the example um, that people always use is a Latin hexameter line goes: if you go strawberry, strawberry jam. So strawberry is is a is this lovely little foot that works very nicely, but it, to start every line like that is difficult in English. So I, I, as I said, I very foolishly decided that I'm going to do that and write this poem using that 
using that metrical scheme of the hexameter line. And there's one famous poem by Longfellow called Evangeline, where he does this. And Longfellow did it as an experiment. And then I think Tennyson wrote a poem complaining about it. Uh, and and, te- you know, and Tennyson, there's a poem where Tennyson complains about the these barbarous English hexameters and how awful they are, you know. <laughs> He doesn't like it at all. And I, I guess he had something of a point. But as I said, the, the point with the life of Merlin is it's so eccentric. It's it's, And it seemed to me it would do justice to the feel of it to make it in this meter that that effectively isn't very suitable for English and, and is therefore has a rather eccentric feel to it when you read it. It does. It definitely comes across yeah. that. It's, yeah. it's got this sort of dizzying gallop to it that really absolutely right it has a sort of it has it has a rather hypnotic sense mm. of its own but it, it's 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 not not so much that it's awkward but it, it has a sort of cadence to it that doesn't feel like it's properly English like no. you know you, you quoted the bit about I'll just I've got it in front of me actually I've just found the page and it says morning in grief for the men now his tears fall in rivers unending hair he besprinkles with dust and his clothes he now rips from his body so that's those are two hexameter lines in English but they're be, you know the beginning of the morning so you you know hair you're beginning the line with a heavy beat and then you've got this dum diddy dum 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 diddy dum sort of rhythm going on and the other, of course, I say, of course, it's not, of course, at all. The, 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 the other crazy thing about it is that, of course, that Greek and Latin verse, certainly Latin verse, the stress accents are secondary to the metrical accent, if that makes sense, mm. which doesn't make sense to us in English, because in English, English verse, the, the metrical beat and the stress accent of the words are the same. Mm. So when you've got an iambic line, you know, and you go, you go de dum de dum is the if if you're thinking de dum de dum is the underlying metrical pattern, then the stress accent is always going to go a horse, a horse, da dum da dum. It's always going to do that. Whereas in Latin, it's not necessarily going to do that for reasons that I won't go into. And those people who are interested in Latin poetry will either know or want to find out. But but for for reasons to do with with the way that Latin poetry is 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 put together. The stress accent does not always coincide with the metrical accent of the line, whereas in English it has to, because it doesn't work if it's not in English. The stress accent and the metrical beat that really have to coincide. You mean so to avoid things like reverse? Yeah. So, so I mean, you can you can vary it. You can make little tweaks and little variations just for the sake of a bit of extra color and things. But if you want a pure line that's that's a proper hexameter, you have to make in English. You have to make the the stress accent of the word line up with the metrical beat. So at the beginning of each foot of the line, you have to have a heavy stress accent on the English word. In Latin, you don't have to do that. Sometimes the stress accent can fall on one of what's the off, if you like, the offbeat. So that in, in Latin, you can sort of syncopate it in, a, in an interesting way, which is one of the fascinations of Latin poetry for those of us who studied Latin. Um, it, it's well... You know, I'm I'm a Latin teacher, and I teach boys Latin who moan about it all the time, and I, I constantly say, "Yeah, but it gets interesting when you get to about A level, then it starts to get good." This, you know, this stuff you're just learning at the beginning is really boring and hard work, but by the time you get to A level and you actually read a real Latin poet, then it gets good. So mm. have patience for five or six years, and then, and then, and then you know, then you'll be okay, because it's it is 
it is a kind of a case of that's where Latin gets really interesting when when you can actually read poets and things like that and then it becomes really good but before then it can be a bit of a slog sadly i stopped just at gcse yeah well i think at gcse you're on the cusp of it getting good you know you're yeah. nearly there but you're not quite there you kind of have to go the next level and then it gets good you know you get into your a level syllabus with with latin and and it starts to get interesting it does but that's really the first point when it really starts to get kind of um exciting and of course when you're this is a horrible digression so pardon me for this but you know when you're a teenager and, and you get to read Catullus and then you know you read certain poems of Catullus you think oh this is quite good and then you sneakily go off and read some others and you realize half of them are absolutely filthy and they're really rude and then you realize half of the other Latin poems are poets are absolutely filthy and rude and they're you know and, and you think wow this is really great and subversive and fun you know and so you start to enjoy it even more but yeah so just to come back to your, your original question was about the, the the verse translation that I set myself was just in a way sort of stupidly eccentric thing to do, which was to to do based on what Longfellow had done with this poem called Evangeline, which is not a well-known poem, probably for the simple reason of the choice of meter. But using that as a model, saying, well, Longfellow was able to do it, you can write hexameters in English, and they sound rather eccentric. And that seems quite fitting for the subject of this poem, because as we've said, everything about it is eccentric. So why shouldn't the, the, the actual poetical form also be eccentric? So if I'd have written it as an iambic uh, piece, you know, a, a, an iambic pentameter, which would have been a natural thing, you know, Milton, Paradise Lost or something. Iambic, it's all iambic pentameter and it's, it flows beautifully and it's wonderful. But, you know, as I said, I wanted that ex eccentricity. Not, I didn't want it. I didn't really want it to flow beautifully. I wanted it to sort of trip in 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 curious ways that you're not expecting. So each line is something slightly unexpected. Yeah, it does. It feels off kilter. It just feels like you're being yeah. pushed with each. And it, like you say, it fits perfectly a story of a madman to be yeah feeling under the pressure of that first stress and not have a comfortable. Yeah, it's never. It never. It never settles into a comfortable rhythm. It just never does. And, and I, you know, as we say, if you've got de dum, 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 it's all a lovely, it's a lovely flow and it's superb. Mm. But the, the hexameter, is, it's, it's an uncomfortable off kilter experience in English, which is why Tennyson complained about it when he wrote about it. So it seemed to me to fit, you know, it seemed to fit the subject matter. So, so that was quite a fun I say fun. I think at the time I was pulled my hair out doing it, you know, because it, some of it was say, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you you must have been trying to think of any possible way not to have a the or i or of at the start of a well, line. Yeah, exactly. You've got to yes, you can't start a line with a or the or anything like that. Yeah. You just can't because it's it would 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 ruin the rhythm. So it's tricky. Um fortunately, I think the way Jeffrey writes his lines are almost always self-contained. So he each of his lines which again is un certainly another reason why he probably hadn't read many classical authors because he doesn't re re he rarely writes long lines that that spread across several lines you know long clauses rather um or long sentences that spread over several lines most of his lines are fairly self-contained and they're a single clause each clause one clause per line nicely so you, you're kind of dealing a line at a time you're not necessarily having it would have been much harder i think if, if he's got a four or five line sort of clause or, or, or a long sentence with a couple of embedded 
relative clauses in the middle of it and then it spreads over many many lines like you get in you know i don't know virgil or something like that reading the Aeneid, you get that all the time so jeffrey's much more compact his latin is more compact which makes the english easier to handle because he is writing you know he's he's a you know he's a 12th century english slash welshman and latin is not his native language so so he's writing although that's no criticism of his latin towards latin i think is fantastic but yeah he, he writes in a way his syntax i suppose is still more influenced by by his own native language than it is by latin which is helpful when you're translating it back into english yeah in the poem there's there's quite a lot of alliteration and i was going to ask you was that something that came yeah. with your translation or or is it in no Jeffrey? it's something he it's something he does he oh, does right. that a lot he actually does that in the in the you know we said right at the beginning about the the question of authorship and i think one of the reasons why you can see between the history the prose history and the the poem even in the prose history he's very fond of alliteration and he writes a lot of alliterative little sentences and things it's it's, it's a nice little trick that he he obviously likes um and he's clearly fond of it in prose as much as in the poetry as well so again i, I was very keen to try and capture that and use it and, and try and try and keep to that where i could where i where it was feasible to do because it's clearly a, a little stylistic thing and interestingly again in another distinction from classical latin verse i think that the roman poet would never have used alliteration in anything like that much they would use it very sparingly because it was a little it was a little you know rhetorical device that they might put in but they wouldn't use it the way that jeffrey does which is very very frequently just all across the board because apart from the hexameter that's what makes it feel really british or um or anglo-saxon maybe modern british i possibly yeah possibly yeah absolutely i mean i didn't i was slightly hesitating then because i was just thinking in the 12th century is jeffrey speaking english he's probably not really is he but not in English in the way that we exactly know it today. Anyway, for sure, for, for sure. But, you know, he's definitely speaking an Anglo-Saxon dialect. He may have known Welsh as well. He may, we don't really know because we don't know enough about him biographically to know, you know, whether he, whether he would have known, actually known Welsh as well. He probably did because he's reading these Welsh books, isn't he? So he probably spoke Welsh as well as, I suppose at that time, um, Norman, Norman French and you know, a form of Anglo-Saxon slash proto-English, I suppose, isn't he? I, I would imagine. In, with his university chums, he's probably speaking Latin. With, mm. the, with the church, in the church and, and at the university, he's probably speaking, actually speaking Latin as well. So he must have been quite a polyglot. Um, so when I say his native language, uh, that's rather, I'd rather fudge that because I wouldn't like to hazard a guess exactly what his native language no, was. No, again, like like the sources, you always forget, don't you? That, well, yeah, I'm not absolutely. You always forget. I, I always forget, you know, what yeah. people have access to and and what they're what they're speaking at any given yeah, and time. Yeah, if you think about that, you know, he's born about 1100. So that's what only only 44 years after the Norman Conquest, isn't it? You know, so he's he's really growing up in the shadow of the Norman Conquest and. And, he, you know, you do see that in, the, in this, again, slight digression, but you see that in the prophecies of Merlin and it comes in a little bit in the prophecies in the, in the sorry, the, prophe the prophecies of Merlin from the history and the, the few of the prophecies he makes in the life of Merlin, where he has an, a sort of some, some Welsh nationalism going on, you know, and saying about how the red dragon of Wales will rise again and, and fight, fight the invaders and things like that. So there's a hint that he's, 
you know, he might he might possibly be kicking against the his Norman overlords at that point, you know, and um, there's little hints of it at least anyway. But yeah, the like languages languages generally are a fascinating topic, and obviously going from one language to another. So Jeffrey's living in a world that's of many languages, isn't he? And you know, and he's living in a multiple multilingual environment. But but his Latin, as I said, is his Latin is his own thing. It's it's his Latin. It's not anybody else's. And I think that's what I like about it. Like you said, with the use of alliteration and just his word choice and vocabulary and, and the way he puts together sentences is just it's his own thing. He writes in his own voice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really nice. He's not he's not imitating classical authors. He's not writing in the style of because later Neo-Latin verse particularly is always self-consciously referring to its classical sources. And you tend to get people writing poem poetry in the style of their favorite Roman author, you know, and um, you, and using using that as a sort of badge of honor to show, look how I can Im- how well I can imitate the, the the elegiac couplets of Ovid brilliantly in this poem. Look how well I've imitated Ovid or, or or whoever, or I've done a lovely I've done a lovely sonnet in the form of Horace or something like that. He doesn't do that. He just writes rather unselfconsciously as himself. I think that's one of the attractions of it. But as I said, in, in, even in the English, you get that sense of it being a unique voice, a unique, which is the thing I wanted to capture, that uniqueness, the sense of it's it's him. It's not like anything else. It's completely unlike anything else. You know, and that is the pleasure of it. But I, it is also, I suppose, I suspect, off-putting to, because it isn't, you can't put it in a box. You can't categorise it, either in terms of literary style or in terms of what sort of genre the story is, you know, it's not really, it doesn't go in a, it doesn't easily go in any sort of box, which is, a, I guess, a problem um, with it. And one of the reasons, I guess, one explanation for why, why it has never been popular. It's so interesting that combined with the difficulty of Merlin as a character here, because his, his madness really is very sympathetically drawn. Yeah. You know, he, he he's really cast as a, a mad person among people who don't understand him, but he's he, he's desperate to get back to the forest. He's he's really in pain to be back yeah. at the court. He does a few unsympathetic things, like um, yes. how he treats his wife. Isn't <laughs> yes, great. it's yes. quite funny yes. how yes. he yes. he says, you know, oh no, I'm leaving her. I'm going back to the forest after he's sort of got her hopes up, and then when he hears that she has married, which he said she can do, he's all um, yeah, he's oh, off back again on the stag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, you're you're quite right. Yeah, he's he's very complicatedly drawn. He, he he is, and the other thing that I think is interesting to us as a modern audience is is that connection with nature mm. that's very strong there, isn't it? And you wonder where that comes from. I don't think it necessarily is a big facet of the original sources as such, but in Jeffrey's poem, it's a big, big feature. You know, nature and the forest and the and this sort of idyllic life in the forest and getting away from the the stresses of kingship and responsibility and society and all of those things at court and you know getting away from those and retreating to an, a more idyllic simpler life in the forest is a big theme in that in that poem and it's it's i think that strikes us as mo- as a modern reader perhaps much more sympathetically than it might have struck Jeffrey's uh, contemporaries, you know, who might have thought it was just ridiculous to go and live in the forests, but we have a we have this lovely post-romantic 
view of, of that kind of getting away from it all and living a simpler life and putting the rat race behind us. We, we, we totally get that. We all buy in. We'd all buy into that in, in our modern world. And, and that's definitely a theme, as I said, you know, by the end of the poem where you where Jeff, where, where Jeffrey leaves Merlin living this rather tranquil existence. It might seem in a, in a way when you're talking about this mythical character of Merlin, it might seem a bit of a disappointment, but actually it's, it's a little bit like um, I'm thinking of things, things like Voltaire and Condide where, you know, the, the idea is you go back, you sort of sit in your garden and tend your plants and you put the yeah. world away, you know, just come away from the world and, and go and retreat from the world and live in this nice little idyll. And it's, it's a, it's a sort of much more modern fantasy than, than it would have been in Jeffrey's time would have seemed straight, very strange, but to us, it's completely, it's much more understandable in a modern context. Yeah. A little academe in the forest. Yes, yeah <laughs> yeah and just that idea of getting away you know he doesn't do well when he's in in the court with his sister and the king and people and and in the in, in going around the the marketplace in the town mm. you know bad things happen and he has a terrible time and he has he gets stressed out and he runs away from them and he runs back to the forest and it's like well we can i think we as a modern reader can can sympathize with that very strongly that, you know, the stresses and strains of, you know, as I said, it's at the beginning of the poem, he starts off as a king. He's a king. And, you know, and, and he has a breakdown. And we we, we understand he basically suffers from PTSD. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. been in this battle. He's seen all these people die and he has this terrible breakdown, you know, and it, what we would describe as PTSD. And he, he sort of um, crashes out of society, if you like, and he leaves leaves all the responsibility of that behind and, and goes goes to live a solitary, hopefully, initially at least, idyllic life in, in the forest, which which in, in in their terms is the wild man of the woods thing and 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 madness. But but I think we as modern as a modern audience can see that in a completely different light, can't we? And see it as a as an understandable retreat from all of these all of the stresses and problems of of leading a leading a modern stressful life in a in a you know in a town in a city and being having the responsibilities of all kinds of things and the desire to leave that behind and just go off on your own is mm. is is far more appealing to us than it, than it possibly was to to Jeffrey's contemporaries it's definitely a kind of madness that makes a lot more sense than the sort of chivalric knight getting heartbroken or cheated on or something and then yes sort of deliberately going mad or belligerently going insane yeah for a bit <laughs> yeah 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 the knights so in in you know when you read mallory and when the knights go off and questing and then they go mad or whatever for whatever reason because they've been jilted or something that yeah they all they all just get and go they go frothing at the mouth and charging at each other and killing each other and things don't they they, they do all of that all the time and yeah and as i said this is this is a far more peaceful story and there isn't it, you know it opens with it opens in the midst of a a battle but within a few lines that's done and then he's you know he's off in the woods and um the rest of the story is nothing to do with wars and fighting and all of that kind of stuff and it's it's you can almost imagine that his contemporary audience being rather disappointed by that because mm. they, they'd be expecting a lot more of that you know the history by contrast and you know all the king arthur stuff in the history is just filled with war you know arthur's mm. it's all arthur's arthur's campaigns 
all the way up to the final showdown with Mordred and the final battle and all of that. It's all really exciting battle, battle, battle stuff all the time. So this is completely different, completely different. Just going back to the prophecies for a second, um, mm. the the prophecies of Merlin that, uh, as you said, came out as kind of a, like a trailer for the for the history. Yeah. They've obviously been people have tried to decode them since they mm. were first released. I found it really interesting in in your translation. You preface each chapter with a a, sh- a short introduction, and in the chapter in which Merlin does reel off some prophecies, you say it seems to be done much more for stylistic effect this one there there is a bit of real prophecy but there's a lot more sort of reveling in obscure imagery for its own yeah own reward does that yeah indicate that he's sort of sending sending up the his his previous work or just sending up the idea yeah, of prophecies be, couldn't it? It, yeah it could be couldn't it because i mean the original in the prophecies the original one, there were digs at, you know, as I said, there were digs at the Normans and the idea that the Welsh would rise again and the, you know, the native Britons, as it were, being being the Welsh. And um, and there were some there were some attempts at that. So it was a little bit political in you know the, the original prophecies. Um, but yeah, the prophecies in this, I I suspect, and again, this is just my view that I suspect he puts those in really for no other reason than to just tie the character in to the original prophecies and the original and the history to really show, yeah, this is the same guy we're talking about. This is the same Merlin, um, the Merlin that you read about in the prophecies and the Merlin that you read about in the history. This is the same guy. And because look, here he is doing prophecy again. And I don't, you know, maybe his heart wasn't particularly in it. Or like you said, maybe he's just sending it up a little bit. And because they're, they're generally rather nonsensical and, don't really seem to make any they don't seem to connect to many one or two do but most of them don't really seem to connect to anything as such and in you know in as i think we said right at the beginning of the time on a tradition of the prophet being as vague as possible hoping that that subsequent events might might allow people to read into the, read into what they were saying and say oh look he said that all that time ago and look now it's come true because he's been you know in, in the great way of you know horoscopes and that kind of thing the vaguer you are the better because people then can read in what you say and and think oh yeah they, oh yes they i will meet a tall dark stranger tomorrow and it, it really you know they, somebody said that and then it happened and you know all of that kind of thing uh, but yeah you you might be right that he might be having a little dig at the whole genre but my my feeling at least is that i think he just really wants to show that this is the same guy. This is the same character, despite the, the, you know, what you've just read in this poem about him doing all these different things. This is Merlin, who you met in the history, and and here's here's why. Because here he is doing some prophecies, and he mentions King Arthur, and he mentions a few things that to just to connect the two. So so it's a way of connecting it and bringing it all together, and 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 just demonstrating to the reader that that you know this really is the same character we're talking about. That, that's my theory about it anyway because they do the the prophecies do seem slightly offset by the discourse on 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 natural philosophy you know the the yeah the way he lists the various behaviors of birds and mm. aspects of the natural world they do almost feel like they're in the same style as the prophecies in in this yeah and yet but they make sense yeah no definitely and i, as I said i think that comes back to what i was trying to in my rather obscure way earlier to sort of hint at was that the idea that Merlin's gifts 
but Jeffrey is sort of suggesting that the prophecy is not some strange supernatural thing. It, it's tied in with his knowledge of natural philosophy in the natural world, and and they're they're much of a muchness. And this knowledge he has, this special knowledge he has, it gives him the ability to make prophecies as well as gives him the ability to to understand you know the flight of birds or the weather or things like that and and you know things to do with the world in in this deep way that he he sees things more deeply than other people do and they're not necessarily disparate things they 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 they're related related so that the style of the prophecies is is rather matter of fact in the way that the the, the style of the the sort of discourse on on the flights of birds and different habits of birds and things is and so they're not yeah, he's not trying to. I, I think, as I just my my opinion, I think he's just trying to suggest that all of this is is part and parcel of the same thing. These are not, you know, prophecy is not some weird supernatural thing that's distinct. It, it's part of Merlin's general overall insight into into the workings of the world. So that's how I feel about it, anyway. No, that definitely makes sense. The thing I did, the other crazy thing I did around the time I did the Merlin book was mm. I translated The Hobbit into Latin. <laughs> so. Round about the same time. Uh, I think I did it pretty much. I can't remember. I, you know what? It's crazy, isn't it? I can't remember if I did it just before I did the Merlin book or just after. It was about the same time. I think that's considerably crazier to, to go. Yeah, <laughs> to it was, go it was completely crazy. I think it was it was just after actually because the reason it came up and I don't I don't want to keep you here but the reason it came up was they were coming up to the seventy fifth anniversary of the publication of the Hobbit I think it was twenty twelve and the and the you know the Hobbit the first movie was due out and and so about a year before then about a year before then I I approached Harper Collins who have the rights to the to the books uh, to the Tolkien estate and um, and I said you know you've done or other people have done this other people have translated harry potter and other other books like that into latin mm. and i said how about for the for the 75th anniversary do we do do the hobbit in latin and i think they just said oh yeah okay why not because they basically you know didn't have to pay me very much and it wasn't going to cost them a big big amount to do so uh, they said yeah as long as you get it done in time for us to publish it on whenever it was sort of September, I think it was something like September in 2012, it had to be out because that was when the anniversary was. Um, so how long did that leave you? So it didn't leave me very, it unfortunately didn't leave me long enough. It was, I was rather over optimistic about the amount of time it would take me. And it took me, let's put it this way, it took me a hell of a lot longer than the, than Merlin did the other way. And yeah, and in, in hindsight, it was a slightly rash thing to do. Um <laughs> I mean, it came out, I think it came out okay, but it didn't, let's put it this way, I don't think it came out quite as well as I would have liked it to do in hindsight if I'd had a bit more time. So it's something I'm very sort of proud of, but at the same time, I'm conscious like, oh gosh, if I'd have given myself an extra six months, I could have really gone, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, but I did do it and it came out and most pe and people who read it said, yeah, they quite enjoyed it. Or I don't imagine many people read it, but, you know, those who did. That is a very unique achievement i haven't heard it, of anything it seemed like a good idea at the time and it was one of those things that you know you know we say it seemed like a good idea at the time and it's something i would never ever dream of doing again because um <laughs> it was really really tough it was and i think the deadline was the worst thing about it but it was a massive massive it was a much bigger undertaking than i thought it would be
I bet. So <laughs> you're not keen on doing the rest of the trilogy then? No, in fact, I know a guy who's done um he's done them. Uh as a oh, chap, really? he's a lovely guy. He's a, he's a retired vicar. And he's an absolutely delightful guy, and he's he's taken them on, and he's been doing them, and he's privately published them. He's not attempted to get HarperCollins to publish them, um, but he's privately published them himself. I've got copies. I've certainly got the first two. I've got the Fellowship and the Two Towers in Latin uh, on my bookshelf that he, that he's done uh, himself. But you know, he's he's a sort of lovely retired vicar, and he that's his whiling away his retirement doing that. So. Whereas I was working and trying to do this in the evenings, it was a it was a nightmare. It was in the weekends, all weekends. <laughs> so it was it was far too far too ambitious for me. If I'd have been a retired vicar, it would have been a different matter. <laughs> I'd have <had> more fun. <laughs> so. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. I'm afraid a huge thank you once again to Mark Walker. Remember that if you want to buy a copy of his translation of the Life of Merlin, there's a link in the episode description box below. That's all for now. Until next time, happy reading.